According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Philippians this morning, our 9.30 hour, and also Wednesday evening. The study continues. This is our Philippians hour. Appreciate that. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, we haven't gotten past that yet. In fact, we're still in verse 1. <laughs> what is it, class 8, 7 or 8, something like that. Anyway, we did a lot of introduction, a lot of groundwork that's going to pay dividends as we move through the chapters. And uh, now we're proceeding through uh, the, the narrative, the text of chapter one before we get started let's take a moment for silent prayer asking god the father to set aside our distractions to humble us under the authority of his truth shall we pray almighty father we do come before you this morning once again thankful for your truth rejoicing in your faithfulness father you are the god of truth your spirit is the spirit of truth your holy spirit indwells each one of us and this is a grace provision of our of our dispensation unique to our dispensation father no previous age has ever had the internal permanent indwelling of the holy spirit to open the eyes of our understanding and to lead us in all things even the deep things of god so we call upon your faithfulness this morning to teach us to open our eyes to give us the ears to hear I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to give, uh, this is probably the last time I'll do this, but kind of giving the overview of the chapter. Uh, we're going to break it down into four sections and handle each one with a separate outline, with a separate uh, ex- expository development. Uh, but we're going to handle the salutation by itself in verses 1 and 2. It is standard in a lot of ways for the Apostle Paul. It's a standard uh, introduction to any epistle. Uh, and yet it is significant for certain aspects of it. Uh, the fact that it avoids the apostolic office, that's unusual. Uh, only in four epistles out of, uh, out of 13 does Paul not include the reference to himself as an apostle. Um, he opens as a slave, which is also significant. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, douloi of Christ Jesus. And uh, that also is, is fairly rare. Only three epistles introduce him as a slave. So it is a standard yet significant, avoiding Paul's own apostolic office, yet spotlighting the overseer and deacon offices of every local church. And uh, unique among all the epistles that he writes, spotlights these offices for the local church, the overseers and the deacons. If you don't have overseers and deacons, you don't have a local church. Right? You may have a fellowship, you may have a flock, you may, but they're sheep without a shepherd. Uh, it's the distinctions between, say, a fellowship or a Bible study, uh, something, uh, an informal gathering of saints, as opposed to a, a, a lampstand, are huge, all right? And the offices of overseer and, el- and uh, deacon are provided for the administrative uh, leadership of that local church. And so we'll be dealing with that here today. The other sections can all be titled with marvelous memory verses. And so when we get to verses 3 through 11, we're going to be centering on he who began a good work in you uh, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And uh, we'll handle that section as a unit. It's the thanksgiving and prayer section, why it is that Paul is thankful for them and thankful for what 
they are and, and what they have been and what he expects they're going to be uh, moving forward. Verses 12 through 18, we'll handle that as a unit. It's called the occasion for writing section. And that's also pretty standard. Anytime somebody writes a letter, it's kind of typical to early in the letter to mention why you're writing. Okay. Um, and so that's common in uh, Paul's epistles or other epistles. Uh, but this centers on my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And so from verse 12 on, the idea of circumstances and rejoicing in those circumstances, not grumbling over bad circumstances like being in jail, all right, but recognizing that even when the bad things do happen, God works them together for good, that great things happen because of where he put you and why he put you there. And so because it's the greater progress of the gospel, would you trade it? Would you trade it for anything? Would you would you rather just opt out and not have the bad thing happen if that means a diminished glory for Jesus Christ, a diminished opportunity for the gospel? See, I don't think if you're thinking with divine viewpoint, none of us would make that trade. We would agree with the Apostle Paul that this is good, that this uh, has happened in this way. Finally, verses 19 through 30 will be the fourth and final section of what we deal with in this chapter. Uh, it concludes with application both for Paul himself personally as well as for the Philippians corporately as a local church to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we'll, we'll uh, spotlight that in verses 19 through 30. So for uh, this morning anyway, we're still dealing with the salutations to the saints, overseers, and deacons. And uh, we'll be able to take this very personally because that's what we have here. At Austin Bible Church, we have saints, overseers, and deacons. And indeed, uh, if we identify with God's provision in in the scriptures, then you can't help but see this and and to embrace it and take it personally in this way. All right, so we left off on Wednesday with the slave mindset. And I want to get right back to that. Let's see. Because I had read a lengthy entry and I got... Stuck reading stuff longer than I thought I was going to be. So, uh, point one, uh, one of six Pauline epistles co-authored by Timothy, and I'm not going to go back over all that, but how special was Timothy to uh, to Paul in this regard? Uh, point two, if I can move forward to point two, or not? There were a lot of E's and B's and subpoints. There we go. Paul cites his slave mindset in three out of 13 salutations. The idea of being a bondservant in Romans and Philippians and in Titus, three of the salutations that address the doulos vocabulary. And uh, did some work on that vocabulary for doulos. Uh, the teaching on slaves that Jesus frequently went to was often a source of illustration, often a source of application with respect to humility, with respect to undeserved suffering, with respect to being free and and uh, serving as under the Lord. The pattern for humility, what, what's lower than a slave? See, because a slave doesn't even own himself. And yet Jesus Christ lowered himself and came as a slave. And we're going to see that. That's the doctrine of kenosis in Philippians chapter 2. That he came in the form of a doulos. And that's the pattern we're supposed to emulate. That we have the attitude or the thinking in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. All right. Did we not get to this yet? Okay. Well, thank you for keeping me on track.
Ah, the long reading thing, which is there. All right. Well, thank you. I'll slow down. We'll, we'll start with this. There is a lengthy entry in the theological lexicon of the New Testament, and I shared that with you on Wednesday night. There's also a longer entry in the Logos Bible Dictionary as, uh, as it relates to that, and so I'll pick up with that. And if you missed Wednesday, we can do that. Logos Bible Dictionary, the article on slavery. And in particular, uh, I want to make sure that we are... Um, Lexham Bible Dictionary. I want to make sure that we are uh, clear simply because our modern world, uh, we're so separated, I think, from aspects like slavery. Uh, we fought a civil war over slavery. We ended slavery in our nation. Uh, the repercussions of, of that time that, that lingered for a century beyond in terms of, of uh, segregation and civil rights and, and hard feelings to this day that continue in uh, different places and for different reasons, all right? Uh, in any event. So it's an awkward topic sometimes, and it's an, but it's an important topic. And uh, coming as it is in, in such an alien thing, you wonder, was this the same planet we live on? Yes. All right. The geography is the same. The land is still there. We can see it on a map. But the institution of slavery, sometimes we don't relate to it so well. And so it's useful to have the uh, the information there. All right, this comes from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. And if you, want, you don't have this available in the Logos Bible software and you want a copy of it, let me know. I can make a PDF out of it and uh, and send that to you. But the practice of one person owning another as property or one person owing a debt to another and repaying that debt via their labor. Uh, found in ancient Near East, the Greco-Roman world, the Old and New Testaments, in fact, all over. Both hemispheres, right? Eastern and Western, ancient world, medieval world, even it exists to this day in the modern world. There is slavery today, primarily Muslim slavery in, in uh, Africa and different places. No single description of slavery fits the various forms it took in the ancient world. However, it was quite different from the slavery practiced in the West during the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, I would want to color that and uh, say, really? Um, Let's uh, make that a discussion topic. In a lot of ways, it was very similar. There were some differences, but to say that it was quite different, I think, um, is an unsupported assertion that really ought to be backed up by what follows, and I don't think it does. Um, etymology, um, we can skip through some of this because we did this the other night related to the, the lexical entry. Uh, the most common terms for slaves in Hebrew and Greek both refer to slaves as servants, uh, the, the, the verb, though, employed is the verb of working. In the Hebrew, it's gavad, or evid, is a worker, and, and a slave related to the work or the labor that they produce. The doulos speaks of the not being free, as opposed to eleutheros, as opposed to, it's an antonym for freedom. And so the etymology is different uh, between the Hebrew vocabulary and the Greek vocabulary. Um, no distinction is made in vocabulary between an Israelite and non-Israelite slave. The same term is used to describe both of them. However, theologically and practically, they were distinct. There were Mosaic law protections for a Hebrew slave and uh, redemption opportunities that w- were given in uh, the seventh year and in the, the Jubilee year. Slavery existed in most cultures in the ancient world and in all the cultures surrounding the land of Israel during biblical times. A slave could be owned by the state. Not just a person could own slaves, but government could own slaves. Uh, the publicly owned slaves in Athens who served as a police force. <laughs> Can you imagine that? 
if there's no civilian police force, there's no, uh, you know, the Austin Police Department is populated entirely by slave uh, labor. The majority of slaves are prisoners of war who were sold into slavery. Could take the form of debt slavery, in which people sold themselves or their children to clear their debts, and that was fairly common as well in, uh, in the ancient world. People were teasing my children Wednesday night. That's all right. <laughs> um, no, no worries. I'm well paid. We're, we're all right. Uh, but for the payment of debts, for punishment of a crime, um, and so forth. The, uh, the birth of children to slaves. If you were born to a slave, you were in that status. Remember, it is a legal status. All right. It is not a citizen. It is a legal status of being the property of somebody else. Also, enslavement of victims of piracy or war. Slaves in state-owned mines worked under inhuman, inhumane conditions and had a short life expectancy. Many household slaves, on the other hand, fared better. Um, in addition to denoting a person's legal status or identity, the term slave also denotes a power relationship between persons. And this also gets debated. In fact, I'm going to skip through this because uh, there's an argument here between Peterson and, and uh, Patterson and Culberson. And... Um, Sometimes I think these scholars get too smart. So I'm going to skip through that. In the ancient Near East, uh, many slaves uh, had been prisoners of war. Uh, others sold themselves or their children in slavery in order to pay their debts. Didn't I say this already? The state was seldom strong enough to effectively supervise large numbers of slaves. Thus, many were semi-free and worked as serfs on state and temple estates or as domestic slaves in wealthier households. And this required less supervision. Others were true slaves, often branded to be easily identified as such and could be bought, sold, and transferred by inheritance, etc. The branding actually reduced the resale value, and so the branding was not as common except uh, in the instance of a runaway slave. And if it was a runaway slave, then the branding uh, would assure that he didn't run away again, and it was a reminder, in the Roman system anyway, that uh, he could have been crucified for being a, a runaway slave. And so the branding was... Um, better than crucifixion, and a reminder that if he was to do it again, that's what he could expect. Earliest terms for slaves in Babylon um, translate as male of a foreign country or female of a foreign country, right? Strange man, strange woman, as we have the strange woman in Proverbs and other Old Testament passages. Um, Anyway, vocabulary attests to the enslavement of both males and females. Um, males, of course, are useful for the, the heavy lifting, labor, mines, that kind of thing, rowing ships. Um, females have other value uh, that they were bought and sold for in um, domestic service, sexual capacities, things uh, of that nature. Uh, according to the Code of Hammurabi, such persons were brought from the four corners of the earth. And again, it's, I mean, it's great, cheap labor, um, but, but, but then the uprisings and all the other difficulties and the management of large numbers of people who don't want to be enslaved, all right, uh, becomes a problem. Um, the language used to refer to slaves also reflects gender. Those who submit are portrayed as weak and therefore feminine, while those who conquer are strong and therefore masculine. Um, the creation of eunuchs captures this idea as captured men could be literally emasculated by their conquerors. The fusion of ideas of gender, conquest, and labor ultimately led to the perception that females are the property of males in patriarchal societies, including Israel. This, too, I think, is 
debatable, and that's a, that's a sociology uh, thing that's I think creeping into the modern scholarship in that regard. There may be other reasons why the wives and the children were considered property, the spiritual property, the responsibility of of fathers and husbands in the uh, belief system of the Old Testament, and we don't dispute that it was patriarchal. We just think that it comes from God's source and not from human carnality. All right, in the Greco-Roman world, owning slaves was not limited to the rich. Many households included at least one slave. Matter of fact, that was the definition of Roman poverty. Uh, sometimes we have poverty definitions that are kind of silly in our lifetime, in our, in our, especially in our nation. Poverty in America is, is wealth in most places around the world, but, uh, but the, the federal government's got a definition of, of poverty, and uh, you, you can qualify for government subsidies even if you're 310% over the poverty level, uh, depending on, on certain things. It's, it's just insane, uh, the definition. But in the Roman world, definition of poverty was you could not afford even a single slave. Say. And so oftentimes you would have a single slave as your token, as your um, representative of the fact that you were not in poverty, that you were a free citizen, not in poverty, and uh, able to independently uh, operate in the freedom of the republic. Um, in any event, the Greeks and Romans both employed a system in which slaves could own property, earn money, and buy their freedom. That was not always the case. Uh, certainly not in Babylon or Egypt. The idea, if you were owned by somebody else, then you didn't own anything. If you thought you owned something, you were just holding it in trust for the person who owned you and owned everything that you you thought you owned. Um, not so in the in the Greek world or the Roman world. And they could own property and they could purchase their own freedom should they accumulate enough uh, to redeem themselves. Slavery provided labor for large portions of agriculture and handicraft. Those who wanted skilled workers often used slaves rather than free men. Thus, many slaves were more economically secure than many free-wage laborers. Okay? But very much so. It's hard to compete in a job market when you're, uh, you're, you know, the workforce competition out there is slave labor. Aristotle presents slavery as a part of the natural order. It is, and now, is this the Bible's view? Okay. It is manifest, therefore, that some are free men and others are slaves by nature. In other words, they are constituted that they're better off as slaves. They're, they're, they're better off as slaves than free people just because, well, that's the way they are. Okay? Certain people, certain nationalities, certain races, certain, certain people. Um, and that's a Greek mentality that views the Greeks as the pinnacle and everybody else as barbarians. <laughs> All right? Um, let's move on. But if you want to read, you can read uh, that there. This was not the only view of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. Philo, for example, differentiates between bodily and moral slavery. States about conventional slaves that they rank lower in fortune but can lay claim to the same nature as their masters. So even though that they may be, you know, economically slaves, they're still human beings, all right? And we would say they're in the image of God. Philo would say they're in the image of God, Okay. He was Jewish, if, and his theology was at least a little bit biblical, even if it was blended with a whole lot of Plato. All right. On the other hand, his view of moral slavery is, is ordained by God, and such slaves are better off as conventional slaves, controlled by an owner. Others declared that it was slavery itself that was against nature. And so this led, led, leads to a huge legitimate debate. If God sanctioned slavery, 
if he incorporates principles of justice and righteousness and fairness, if he incorporates principles under Mosaic law by which slavery is, is mitigated and regulated and so forth, well then, is the institution itself necessarily evil? Is the institution itself necessarily unbiblical or wrong and, and, and so forth, see? And that's the debate that, that raged in, in, in Christian nations as they determined Wilberforce and other folks decided whether or not it was right to keep these slaves and why different pastors in Christian denominations uh, argued over those, those very issues. All right. Anyway, the rest of this article is useful because it, it surveys in the Old Testament and the New Testament in this. Uh, slavery terminology appears in many genres of biblical literature, including, of course, legal ordinances, narrative, parables, poetry, wisdom literature. So it encompasses uh, the broad spectrum of, of the scriptures. Um, Hagar was the, the, the slave that gave birth to Ishmael, we remember. And, of course, Jesus used slaves in a lot of his parables. The idea that some people are slaves by nature expressed by Aristotle might be found in the curse of Canaan. I disagree. <laughs> uh, that was a consequence of actions and uh, so forth. There Noah says, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves shall he be to his brethren. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his slave. However, that, that passage did lead to concepts in later centuries that, oh well, you know, there are certain races or there are certain population groups that uh, that are cursed by god that ought to be in that servile condition see and so they take this truth or this point and they take that point and they don't really relate but they make them relate okay they don't necessarily follow but they make them follow okay and so you end up with all of these themes and all of these theories and all these ideas you know and and not only related to canaan but even older than that going back to the curse of cain the mark of cain when cain murdered abel and god put a mark on him you know what that mark was i don't either but the scripture doesn't say but (laughs) the legends and the myths and the and the 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 story came out that he turned them black say that's where black people came from that's the curse of cain okay and so because of that and because of uh, the curse of Canaan here after the days of Noah, well then, it's only natural then that, that black people ought to be servants because the Bible says, you see you see where this goes. So you've got to rightly divide the word of truth and you've got to be cautious with, uh, with what you're doing. All right. So I would... Uh, it does say might be found. But I color that red to say... Uh-uh. All right. Beginning with Exodus, slavery is the primary human condition from which God releases his people. And so the Exodus, the idea of Israel, the nation being birthed out of bondage, this is, this is powerful because this then becomes the, the uh, scope, this becomes the, the, the milieu, if you will, the uh, genre in which redemption is portrayed. You and I are, are redeemed out of the slave market of sin. You and I, when we get saved, we are brought out of our bondage right? Out of the bondage to sin, and now we're in Christ. And, and the whole illustration of the Exodus is, is the picture of that, right? The, the Red Sea was opened. Who can do that? Okay? Only God can do that. Same thing with our salvation. Can you save yourself? You can't save yourself any more than you can part the Red Sea, right? And so the fact that only God could do it tells us the doctrine that as far as saving us goes, only God can do it. 
We can't save ourselves. And then they walk through on dry ground, they get to the other side, and what happens? Water comes crashing down. Is there any going back? Okay. Can you ever lose your salvation? Right? And, and these pictures, they're powerful. And you can teach this doctrine. You can teach it to small kids in Sunday school. You can teach this, this, these principles are huge. And it all comes out of slavery as they were uh, redeemed as a people. So, um, God's liberation of the Israelites from the enslavement of Egypt becomes the paradigmatic experience of God's justice and compassion. And it's seen in the prologue of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Um, so decrees that involve slavery are thus sensitive to the fact that Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt. And I think as such, it's similar to the New Testament. Uh, Christian slave owners are commanded to be gracious and merciful and fair to their slaves. And Christian slaves are commanded to be hardworking and, and gracious towards their masters. Because it's in the context of the will of God. It's in context with doctrine. Slavery as such is not questioned. Instead, the relationship between the Israelites and God is described as a new slavery. And same thing with us in Christ. We are bond servants of Jesus Christ, as Philippians 1.1 1, 1 says. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. All right. The Old Testament seems to assume that slavery is part of the human experience and provides the Israelites with regulations for slavery. And so this then addresses the question. If it's, if it's simply a, a facet of reality in, in human life, is God then sanctioning it? Is he mitigating it? Is he saying, well, okay, in the meantime, here's how you should regulate it until such time <clears throat> as humanity can evolve and grow beyond grow beyond that as a moral issue? Okay? We may, we may follow up on this more Wednesday, a week from Wednesday when we have a question and answer night because i got a lot of questions to throw out and get us to chew on and think about with respect to this. Uh, because I think that's a very dangerous thing. And what else is society going to outgrow in, uh, uh, from the primitive world to now? Okay, And, and we want to be very cautious. We didn't end slavery because society had outgrown it, because we, we became more enlightened, we became more moral, we became more noble. We're advancing towards the age of Aquarius where humanity can be exalted into this. Okay, That's not why we ended slavery. But people who make that argument, I think, are in trouble. Because then we might say, well, haven't we outgrown uh, homosexuality, uh, the stigma against that? Have we not outgrown um, other stigmas? Have we, you know, have we not outgrown the idea of, of uh, uh, premarital sex? That's no big deal anymore. Come on. Have we not outgrown all these other things? See, if we're going to limit the Word of God based on the standards of an ever-degenerating <laughs> culture, uh, that thinks it's ever enlightening, I think uh, I think we're in a lot of trouble. So remind me, uh, not this week, but next Wednesday at the Q and A time um, to explore this a little bit because I got some questions on that. Anyway, uh, there are provisions in the law then for the redemption. Uh, there are provisions for the release in uh, the year of jubilee. Um, and you got those passages there. While the Old Testament does not condemn slavery outright, the Bible could be read as showing a consistent theme of liberation from slavery and uh, these aspects. 
You know, 1 Corinthians 7 says, if you're able to be free, then do that. Okay? But if you're not able to be free, don't worry about it. Because you're free in Christ. And uh, the application there, it couldn't be clear in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. All right, then there's extra biblical liter- Jewish literature outside the Old Testament. Uh, again, Philo, New Testament slavery. Jesus uses that, portrays a true follower as a slave. Did he come to, to serve or to be served? All right, and uh, the greatest among you shall be as your servant, shall be as your slave. And then, of course, the New Testament. Why do we submit to our, our masters? You've been bought with a price. And remember, we didn't buy ourselves, so we don't own ourselves. We were bought by Jesus Christ on the cross, so we belong to him. There's the 1 Corinthians 7 passage. Slavery is a metaphor for devotion to others. He calls himself a slave. Paul brings out that slavery image in Romans 7. Uses that as the contrast. Of course, legalism is a bondage as opposed to grace, which is a freedom. Saw that in Galatians. And the book of Philemon is all about returning the runaway slave. He returns Onesimus to Philemon and doesn't tell him what to do. All right? And uh, we know there's legends and traditions about what happened afterwards, that he was freed and he became a deacon in the church and these other things. But um, the text doesn't order him to do anything. All right, and then into the church fathers in the patristic period, the Didache, uh, Clement of Rome, Shepherd of Hermes. This is useful as well. All right, and then on into the Middle Ages, different aspects there. Anyway, if you want a copy of that, let me know, and I'll be glad to uh, PDF it and send it to you. All right, moving on. Jesus' teaching often included slaves, 72 times in the Gospels, all right, 72 times in the Gospels, including, and I grabbed a selection here out of mostly Luke, tacked on a couple of things from John, um, won't spend a ton of time on this because I think we're familiar with, with most of these, so let's just quickly breeze through, starting in Luke 7. I think um, the neat thing about the gospel <laughs> and there's no slave or free there's no male or female it just everyone can accept the the gift of eternal life everyone can become a part of the body of christ it's a beautiful thing and and, and to be given for this preaching to go forth in the first century in the roman world the way that it did the impact that it had among the slaves among the women among the 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 common people uh it's amazing all right Anyway, Luke 7, uh, here's a centurion who has a, uh, a, a servant, a slave, and um, this is verses 1 through 10. A centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And so we realize that uh, you know slaves aren't always disposable. Uh, a cruel master might just say, okay, he's sick, get rid of him, buy a new one. All right, but uh, that wasn't the attitude this centurion had in uh, developing a, 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 a love or a regard, was highly regarded by him. 
And so when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And uh, some great doctrine in here too, by the way, of, uh, of uh, you don't have to come to my house and don't, don't trouble yourself to come to my house. You can do the miracle from where you are. <laughs> that uh, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence can handle this. And uh, it's marvelous the, the, the attitude that he has towards chain of command and delegated authority. And uh, Jesus compliments him for his faith in that regard. All right, but there's a slave and a regard, a personal relationship and a regard between the, the centurion and the slave. Over to chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 35 through 48. And uh, an interesting passage that addresses uh, a number of different things. Um, and we have, um, let's see, without reading this whole thing, men who are wanting, uh, waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and when he knocks. And blessed are those slaves, those douloi, whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. And so, uh, but notice, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Well, that grabs your attention. <laughs> yeah. Normally, if the master's coming back, the slaves are ready to, to serve him. That's why they're slaves. That's why he's the master. And uh, this parable teaches a lot with respect to what the kingdom's going to be and, and the uh, humility that our Savior exhibits. The faithful and sensible steward. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing. Now notice there's a steward who's also a slave in verses 42 and 43. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. A slave can be highly promoted. A slave can be exalted. A slave can be given tremendous resources and authority and responsibility. He's still a slave. And then, of course, there's a wicked, lazy slave, and we don't want to be that. Where uh, cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That's... Uh, that's not a happy passage. All right, chapter 14, verses 16 through 24. Yeah, we're going real quickly through all of these. If you want more, of course, every one of these is in the Life of Christ notebook. We taught each one of these at length in the, uh, the Life of Christ series. Um, Luke 14, 16 through 24. A man was having a big dinner. He invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who have been invited, come now, everything's ready. And so the role of slaves to fetch participants, all right? What is our role as slaves of Jesus Christ? Are we, in fact, going out with the gospel message? Come now, for everything is ready. And they all began to make excuses. <laughs> Everyone has an excuse. All right. One said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Another one said, I've married a wife. I'm going to try her out. Uh, anyway, some of these make me laugh. But he uses slaves in this, uh, in this passage. Chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending a sheep uh, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately, sit down and eat? 
But he will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. Afterward, you may eat and drink. See, that's the normal order of things. The master eats first. The slave uh, eats later. Leftovers and whatever else. Uh, but here again, the Lord turns things upside down and uh, the blessings there. All right. Chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. And um, here's the slaves who are given money. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. He called ten of his slaves, gave them ten minas, and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. And so here are slaves, each one given a single mina, and uh, the parable of this. Okay, It's a different parable when they're given different amounts. Here's a parable where they're given the same amount. And uh, each one teaches a particular aspect of this doctrine. All right, chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. The vine growers, a uh, man planted, uh, planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And at harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed proceeded to send another slave. They beat him also, treated him shamefully, sent him away empty-handed. He sent a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Okay, rough on your slaves, right? And so here's the uh, owner who gets a bright idea. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. All right. Which to me seems like a stupid idea because, I mean, these <laughs> look how abusive they've been towards the slaves. But that's what he's thinking. Okay. And all of this, of course, is a parable of what? The prophets had been sent again and again and again. How abused were they? And then here comes the Christ, the beloved son. And uh, yeah. So uh, the vine growers saw him. They reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. Well, how does that follow? <laughs> you know, if you kill the heir, does that automatically make you the heir? I mean, how many more murders do they have to do? I think they're a bunch of malcontents and uh, probably this is the first labor union I think that God formed in uh, <laughs> rebellion against ownership and management. All right. So that the uh, inheritance will be ours. Well, are you legitimately coming into ownership of this land or are you just rabble-rousing and taking it by violence? Anyway, story there involving the slaves. Uh, now, uh, out of Luke, uh, two more, the Gospel of John now, John chapter 8, and there's so many more. Matthew and Mark have a bunch, largely parallel with Luke, but John chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. We need to identify the fact that the Scriptures are using slavery as a teaching device, that that realm becomes the metaphor and then, and then teaches us about sin. Jesus employs this. And um, I love this chapter. So taking us up through verse 30 and the doctrine that he relates and the, the information that he gives here as the light of the world, notice there is a response. There is a response. And um, at, at verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. 
So there is a response. And, and this gets overlooked, all right? Because he immediately starts talking to those who had believed in him. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him. And he's going to talk about discipleship. And it's key that we understand that discipleship is an imperative directed towards believers. Because not every believer is a disciple. Believers have to abide in the word of God. And that's what this text tells us. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide, continue, remain, dwell, if you meno in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Okay? So what's this talking about? It's not talking about getting saved. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. That's not a salvation verse. They already are saved. They already believed in him in verse 30. This is a discipleship verse. This is a freedom not from the penalty of sin, but a freedom from the power of sin. This is the freedom that we have in the outworking of our faith, the freedom that we have as we live in the Word of God. We're dwelling in it. It's shaping us. It's molding us. And so we have an experiential freedom that doesn't come about automatically just because we're saved. All right? Yes, we're free from the slave market. We're free positionally. We're no longer subject to that penalty of sin, right? The wages of sin is death. We're we're done with that. So the penalty of sin has been dealt with, but the power of sin remains because you and I continue to have sin natures in this fallen body, in this fallen world. And so we need freedom from that power of sin. We need the freedom that the Word of God provides. That's what we see here. And so abiding in the word of God, you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. What does it mean to abide in the word of God? Okay, it's not an occasional visit every so often when your life's a wreck and you decide to see what the Bible says so that you can pick up a tip or two to, to, you know, get out of whatever crummy life you think you're having at the moment. No, abiding in the word of God is long term, consistent, all right? It's the uh, the uh, regular place of your residing. You know it well because you're there a lot. You don't have to ask for directions to the bathroom or the kitchen or, or where do you keep the, the frying pan or whatever. I mean, you know. You, that's because that's where you live. And, and, and you know where everything is and you're comfortable there and you, and you feel that that's where you belong. Not just a place you visit. And so they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Really? I mean, how delusional can they be? <laughs> they were birthed. I mean, are they talking about them as a people in the history of Israel? That's ludicrous. But, but even, even they themselves in their particular generation are still under a Roman yoke. The nation is under a Roman bondage. How is it that you can say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And see, this is the, the reality for believers. That we're, we're no longer positionally in that slavery, but we go back to that. We resubmit to what we should be free from. Right? And if you think about that, the Bible also illustrates this. The, the, the principle of somebody who's born in bondage, well, yeah, you're a slave and you're born that way. And then, but what would happen if you were then released, but you didn't want to be released? And you go to your master and say, oh, I love my master. I don't ever want to be free. I want to serve you all my life. 
And so they had a procedure for that. And, and they would take the, this is where ear piercing was invented, right? <laughs> Maybe not invented, but they, uh, they, they, would, they would take an awl and they would pierce the ear. They put a gold ring through there. And, uh, and, and so the voluntary slave then said, although I was freed, I don't want to be freed. And so that too becomes a picture, does it not? Of what do we do every time we decide to, to go into carnality? We say, well, yeah, Jesus, I know you saved me. You died on the cross and now I'm free. But you know what? I love my old master. I want to go back to him. I don't ever want to, I don't, I don't, I want to serve that master. And so you end up in carnality again, walking in darkness. You end up submitting to that sin nature. Okay. Not just here. I think of Romans chapter six. Think of the, the uh, the passages of scripture that describe this this voluntary bondage once again, practically speaking, to the sin nature. So he says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. We can appreciate that, but it's discipleship, not salvation. Lastly, then John fifteen twelve through seventeen. What do you think of when you think of John 15? Yeah, I think of vine. I think of the vine and the laborer and that. But um, once we get past the, the abiding in the vine passage, which is discipleship, same as John chapter 8. Now we got discipleship here in John 15. And in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. But then see what he does. No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And so here is an an exalted status for the body of Christ. An exalted status. Israel, they were slaves. The church, we are slaves, but we are more than slaves. Okay? Like the Philemon doctrine. A beloved brother. We are friends. And we have um, purpose, right? A slave is not entitled to an explanation. You do what I say because I said so, right? If you want to know why, you don't have to know why. Just do it, okay? A slave does not know what his master but, uh, but he, uh, is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And so we are brought on board in the Father's program. And the Father makes His will known. The Son makes His will known. We are, uh, our eyes are open in, the, in obedience to the plan of God. All right, it's a beautiful thing. Anyway, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit so that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give you. In this I command you that you love one another. All right, so there's just a survey, sampling of our Savior's teaching on slavery. The Apostle Paul also frequently referenced slaves. As I mentioned a little bit ago, Romans chapter 6. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching from John 8. The Apostle Paul expands upon that in Romans chapter 6. When you present yourself as slaves for obedience, then you are subject to that which you submit to. Either God the Holy Spirit as He leads you in the truth of the Word of God or your own sin nature. 
Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. You know, grace is grace, but that's not an excuse to sin. So may it never be. We've died to sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So consider yourselves dead to sin. And don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. I love that. Romans 6.12 is just like Galatians 5. Romans 6.12 tells us that, that it's, it's, our, it's the choices we make. If we sin, it's because we let, it, we let sin reign. We chose to submit to the sin nature. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a promise. Galatians 5.13, and here it's Romans 6.12. Don't let it. Verse 14, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So we should be uh, living this walk, all right? Uh, Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? And this is the choice we make all day, every day. Am I going to be in fellowship or out of fellowship? Am I going to be carnal or am I going to be filled with the Spirit? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. It doesn't happen automatically. You've got to be committed to teaching. And in particular, a form of teaching that equips you in this regard. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We had an entire Bible conference a couple years back that was dedicated to that one verse right there. The form of teaching to which you are committed. In a recognition that this style of exegetical teaching, verse-by-verse teaching, categorical doctrinal Bible teaching is, uh, is, is valuable and, and rare. All right, But in the places where it has gone forth, believers have been built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. And we can be very thankful for that. So um, that's what ends up happening, right? And I like uh, uh, talking about this in terms of, um, you know, swashbucklers, my favorite kind of movies and that, you know. When Lancelot presents his sword to Arthur and he bows his head, he drops to a knee and he gets dubbed, you know, Sir Lancelot or Sir Galahad or Sir whoever. And, And they are then in service to that Lord, right? And that's what we do when we go carnal. That's what we do when we decide that we're going to uh, grieve, quench, and resist the Holy Spirit and we're going to become slaves of our sin nature again. And so we just drop to a knee and bow our head and here we are, you know. And, and it's pathetic because it's so unnecessary. And, and, and so often we do it because we want to commit a particular sin and the, the ugliness of it, or the, I think it's grace on God's part, the overruling will of God sometimes steps in and doesn't let us do what we wanted to do. And so we're still carnal, and we end up, we wanted to do sin A, and so we submitted to the sin nature, and instead God overrules and doesn't let us do sin A, he's merciful, doesn't allow, he mitigates the damage we would be doing. But then we even wind up doing sin B and C and D, E and F, and by the time we think about getting back in fellowship again, man, we got a long chain of stuff we got to confess. All right? Am I just preaching to myself this morning, or you know what I'm talking about? All right. And so that's what this chapter is talking about. See, it's, 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 it's the attitudinal issues behind the things we do. 
our attitude, how it's shaped, the way we think, the mental attitude sins that are done long before the overt sins are ever done, if they ever succeed in getting done, all right? Because we are carnal long before the physical thing ever happens. 1 Corinthians 7, more of Pauline doctrine as it connects to slavery. And this is... uh, the marriage, divorce, and slavery chapter. Uh, maybe it's not a good title, but anyway. First Corinthians 7. Um, you know, to remain content in that condition in which he was called married, unmarried, the blessings God has for you as a single person, the blessings God has for you as a married person, in the condition when God changes your state, be faithful in that state. Likewise, slavery, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. So this is kind of a conditional thing. If it's possible, then yeah, go ahead. It's preferable. But it's not necessary. And if it's not possible, then even what's not preferable is still glorifying to Jesus Christ. For he who was called... In the Lord, while a slave, is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And uh, different patterns there. By the way, there is huge motivation in Christ to, uh, when it says, do not become slaves of men. Who does that? A lot of people. Voluntarily as a way of, out of debt. They, they will volunteer for the, de- the debt bondage in order to, to you know, the bankruptcy, bankruptcy proceedings of the ancient world uh, for whatever length of time necessary to come out of that. But in the New Testament, we're told, don't even go there, right? Because in Christ, we're now part of a body that can meet one another's needs, provide for one another, redeem one another. Um, and we should not be uh, going into slavery in that regard. We should be working hard and providing for one another in uh, in that circumstance all right so that's first corinthians 7 galatians 3 28 and galatians 4 1 through 7 these uh these will preach themselves because we just recently finished our galatians series there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free man there is neither male nor female you're all one in Christ Jesus. So when you got saved positionally now, you are a part of that body of Christ, one in Christ Jesus. There is no uh, greater or lesser or better or worse or more important, less important. There is no distinction between the two. Of course, biologically, you remain male or female, depending. Uh, socioeconomically, you remain free or slave, depending all right, those secular life realities didn't change because of the new temporal, uh, spiritual life reality that, that places us in the body of Christ. So hopefully we're clear on that. Um, remember this, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4? Remember this great development here that talks about little kids, little children? And it doesn't matter if your dad's the king or if you're a slave, your dad's a slave. When you're both little kids, you're both little kids, okay? And you're going to grow up. And uh, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so imagine, you know, Caesar's kid and this other this slave's kid, and they're growing up in the same schools. The only difference being, of course, 
is that when they are of age, um, Caesar becomes, you know, Caesar's kid becomes the heir and the, the free man, son of Caesar, and the slave is still a slave. And uh, the issue's there. Anyway, there's a whole uh, realm of doctrine then that comes out of this related to uh, considering Old Testament as, as law, as bondage, and considering New Testament now as grace and freedom, and it's time to grow up. Okay, it's time to walk as a church age believer in Christ. It's a time to say Abba Father and identify that we are sons of God the Father and we are heirs with Jesus Christ. Anyway, I enjoyed that a lot. Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9. Parallels in Colossians, but Ephesians 6. This is where we have uh, children obey your parents and parents don't provoke your children. So there is, uh, there's two directions going there. It's a, it is an authority issue. Children are under the parent's subjection and parents, and yet uh, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So it's both directions. Children have a duty to their parents. Parents have a duty to their children. They're both going to glorify Jesus Christ as they operate in that way. And then same thing with slaves and masters. It's both directions. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. And it has to be real. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. See, you're not like that, uh, you know, you got to... <laughs> You got a crew or a shift or whatever you have. Uh, we had 20 officers on my last uh, shift at the Travis County Jail. And, uh, you know, 20 officers. And, and out of those 20, who are the hardest workers and who are the biggest slugs? All right. And, you know, who's the, who's the shifty guy that thinks he's getting away with it because he just kind of drifts around and doesn't do much work and sloughs it off on everybody else? Okay. It better not be a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. They better be, if they're true disciples, they better be the hardest working guy there. Working as unto the Lord. Because that's our testimony. And then, of course, masters as well. Notice uh, we're doing this from the heart, still with slaves in verses 7 and 8. With goodwill render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. You know, a slave may be tempted to not work so hard because what's he getting out of it? You know, all he's trying to do is not get killed today, live another day, and doesn't bother him because all the work of his hands, his produce, his production is not going to him. It's going to the master. Okay? And so a slave is, uh, is, is not motivated to uh, efficiency or not motivated to um, greater production than what he has to. By the way, in the Middle Ages, this is why slavery was economically no longer viable. This is why capitalism made slavery uh, unviable in, uh, on a practical basis. That's a different topic. All right. Then masters. And so the slave can say, hey, I'm, I'm laying up treasure in heaven. <laughs> okay, I'm going to serve the Lord because the consequences are eternal. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. 
And it seems like, well, that's unbalanced, isn't it? How come the slave got all those verses and the master just has that one verse? That doesn't seem fair, right? Five, six, seven, eight, nine. Five whole verses dumping on the slaves. And then the master just gets one little verse there at the end. Does that seem uh, out of proportion? Does that seem wrong? Well, wait a minute. Look again. Because that one verse, the master, it says, masters, do the same things to them. Guess what? Those five verses that applied to the slave, they also apply to the master. And one extra verse. (laughs) So don't, uh, if you thought that uh, slaves had it worse than masters here, no, the masters are getting one extra verse. Okay? You do the same thing in 1 Peter 3, too, with wives and husbands. Because wives have six verses, the husband gets verse 7, but it includes verses 1 through 6 as well. All right? You husbands in the same way, live with your wives as with a weaker vessel. All right. Pretty fascinating how all this comes together. Uh, So there it is. Knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, there is no partiality with him. So if you are accountable to a master in heaven, how are you going to operate as a master here on earth? That's humbling. That's frightening. You know, I think as a pastor, I've got to close here, but as a pastor, <laughs> wow. What do you think motivates shepherding? And knowing, hey, the good shepherd is who I work for, and uh, I, I can't defy him, oh my. All right, the accountability is there. All right. Well, it is 9.30 according to the clock. 9.30 is the time I'm supposed to start. So maybe I'll just go another hour. Or I'll close in prayer and we'll use the fellowship time between services to uh, spring that clock forward. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, it is uh, indeed a blessing. And and I pray for your help uh, to open our understanding, to open our eyes. Father, we're dealing with slavery and we're dealing with an institution that, that doesn't exactly carry over into our modern world. Uh, Father, we, we can understand um, husbands and wives and parents and children because we still have those, but slaves um, just uh, especially help us to overcome uh, some of the uh, social issues, some of the remnants of, of ugliness in our nation. There's, there's still a lot of uh, hostility, a lot of resentments. There's a lot of racial unrest and there's there's a tremendous amount of things that still um, afflict us to this day because of human carnality and other struggles so father um, keep us in the light and give us uh, your divine viewpoint perspective that we can appropriately understand our role as your slaves Uh, you bought us father the price was your son and uh, we want to thank you and praise you in jesus christ's name we pray amen all right, it's our fellowship time between now and the top of the hour. We will-